0: You'll hear from writers, actors, singers, dancers, musicians, painters, multi passionate creatives, and anyone else who considers themselves a creative soul. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Creative Soul Podcast. Today's guest is Amy Green Smith. Amy is a certified and credentialed life coach and hypnotherapist, masterful speaker, and personal empowerment expert. Amy uses her roles as coach, writer, podcaster, and speaker to move individuals to a place of radical personal empowerment and self-worth with acute focus on helping people find their voice. I think we've seen the last couple years that you know, in our social media world, it can be kind of difficult to have deep conversations with people who think differently than you and how to really have difficult conversations when there is disagreement and conflict around. And I know for myself, I was someone who avoided conflict at all costs growing up because it just made me so uncomfortable to even face conflict so that I would not either not speak up for myself or not speak my truth. But Talking to Amy today really helped me understand that the best things we can do for ourselves is to be as honest as possible with the people around us and to not do it from a very emotional, reactional place, but really from a grounded place of wanting to reach a mutual understanding and even being in friendship or relationships with people who have very different thoughts and beliefs than you. We talk a little bit about regulating your nervous system and how to not be so triggered in these conflict moments how to navigate these conversations with grace and kindness and she just walks us through some really specific examples that i know i will be implementing in my life and i hope that it will be helpful to you so without further ado let's get into this conversation with amy well hello amy thank you so much for coming on the creative soul podcast today thanks for having me i'm excited to chat yeah me too so I will start off with the first question that I ask everyone when they come on. And that is, what is currently fueling your creative soul?
1: Ooh, what is currently fueling my creative soul? You know, I think for me personally, I get so lit up when I see my clients and students start to really speak up for themselves and stand up for themselves in ways that they haven't done so in the past. And it's it's oftentimes a really a, a painful process in that I work with a lot of a lot of women who tend towards people pleasing or being really highly invested in the opinions of other people. And when they start moving into this place where they genuinely believe in their own enoughness or believe in their own worthiness, their bullshit tolerance gets really, really low. And so they start recognizing family members or spouses who like haven't been treating them right. Mm -hmm. And so they, that kickback of just Oh, no, you don't get to talk to me like that. Oh, no, I'm not going to tolerate that anymore. And then, you know, sort of there's a lot of grief that's involved with that. But that is one of the kind of light bulbs that I see go off that just fuels me that's where I get like oh cool this is why I'm here to do this this is why you know I spend so much time on the business and like all the minutiae and the things that aren't that fun is to watch to watch those those specific moments and there's an intimacy in that too to be able to witness people transforming and and that still just lights me up every single
0: time I see it Mm, I love that. That's like that soul work, like totally your soul's dharma, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I'm super curious because I don't know you that well. And I'd love to hear a bit about your journey in becoming a coach and what has your been, been your personal journey of learning to stand up for yourself and say no and set boundaries and yeah, kind of let's get into all of that.
1: Sure. Well, I think, you know, not dissimilar to a lot of folks who are in kind of the personal development space, we kind of got led this direction because of the the lessons we needed to learn ourselves. Hmm. And so my situation is is quite the same. So for a bit of context, I grew up in a very, very conservative, born again, Christian family. And my father had a master's in divinity and a doctorate in ministry. So (laughs) he wasn't fucking around. And so there was needless to say a lot of motivation from the place of guilt and shame and fear. And there were a lot of things that didn't quite feel, feel right to me as a child, but of course you're, you know, kind of indoctrinated into a very specific belief system. And I too am quite the artiste and was working as a makeup artist in the early and mid two thousands. And it kind of came to sort of a crescendo point with my family when my father passed away in 07. Wow. And it was, it, you know, for, for a bit of perspective, I'm the oldest of, of three, I have two younger brothers and by all intents and purposes, I was the quote, the good kid, right? Like had been working since I was 14, put myself through college, got married young, moved out of the house and sort of had my own independence in life and juxtaposed against my two younger brothers who, you know, we're really a bit more aimless. Didn't have a lot of structure. or Go to school, or did tr- had trouble with the law. Did some jail time. Both of them. Some substance abuse issues. And so I kind of felt like I'm doing a lot of things right, right. Like I've got a lot of a, a lot of ducks in a row. And so it comes to a head. My father passes away, and because I had this experience as a makeup artist, I knew that I wanted to do his makeup for his funeral viewing. Oh. I, I just felt like if I have this skill set, I, I felt like it would be an asshole move to be like, dad, get your own makeup artist. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I just, I felt very convicted that I wanted to do that. And I also wanted to speak and he was an incredible human. And there were hundreds of people who came to his funeral service. I speak, you know, to the crowd of hundreds, We get back home to my mom's house, and she finds it the most opportune time to tell me that she feels as though my father and her had failed as parents because the three of us, the three kids of us, were not, quote, walking with the Lord. Oh, so Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm winning at daughter today. Like, I just did makeup on my dead dad and spoke to crowds of hundreds of people who believe in something very different than what I believe in. And Like you're just, all of that doesn't matter. I'm just lumping you in with you're a failure because you don't subscribe to the, you know, the faith traditions that we raised you with. Mm. So I'll tell you what, Leah, that was, that was the pivotal moment where I realized that speaking up for yourself or establishing a boundary is not, is actually not oftentimes a deal breaker, you know, an ultimatum. I, you either need to choose me or yourself. Right. But there are situations where it is, where it does push does come to shove. And I realized in that moment that if I was going to have to choose between making her happy or making me happy, Mm. I was going to choose me. Mm. And I'll tell you what, after that, it was like the floodgates had opened and I was not my best self, that's for damn sure. I I think a lot of the anger and the things that had been repressed for so many years by the fact that now my father was gone. So it wasn't like two against one. It was like me and my mom, you know, back and forth Um, that I just got very combative and adversarial. And I wanted to talk about all the polarizing topics and I would kind of yell and scream. And it wasn't until many years later that I realized, oh, you can actually speak up for yourself, have really difficult conversations, ask for a divorce, ask an adult child to move out of the house, tell your family you don't subscribe to the religion you were raised in, come out as queer. Like you can do all of these really polarizing, scary things and you can do it with the utmost grace and kindness mm. that you, you actually don't have to be maniacal and screaming and yelling in order to get your point across. Mm. And that really became sort of the the nucleus of the work that I do now, which is teaching women, usually mostly women's or those who are femme presenting, what that, what that really means to believe in your own enoughness, believe that your voice matters. There's that internal belief in worth. Mm. And then there's the external component of okay, now how do I communicate with the outside world? Now, what does it look like to say no or establish boundaries or have tough conversations? And as somebody who is independent and building my own business, many folks who are in spiritual practice or are artists themselves, they come up against, and I'm sure you've had these situations yourself, come up against family members or friends who say like, why don't you get a real job? Or Mm -hmm. why is your head always in the clouds? Or woo-woo isn't going to pay the bills? Or, you know, you need to work for a design firm. You can't have your own place. And so those are the types of conversations that I find that no one gave us a manual around. Nobody told us like how to actually say, hey, I'm not interested in that, that perspective, or, you know, I'm not going to be commenting on that any longer. So it became sort of the work that I do now became a necessity of what I needed to learn mm. in my own family dynamic.
0: Wow. Oh my gosh. Thank you for sharing that. And I feel so grateful to be talking with you today. Cause I think this is such important work, especially in today's world where we are so polarized. And I think in the last couple of years, you know, people coming up against different belief systems with their friends, their family, you know, people around them, and what I what I have observed in society is that maybe because of social media and just the way that we've been living over the last couple of years, we can become really siloed in our you know echo chambers, and it's hard to reach out to the other side and have conversations of understanding and compassion versus like kind of that energy of you're wrong and and I'm right and and you don't see it my way. So how would someone approach those difficult conversations, any difficult conversation from a place of grace and kindness? Because I think that is what we all need to learn right now to be able to actually communicate and come to a place of understanding.
1: Yeah, well, I there's there's so many places we can go with this, but the first thing that I do wanna mention is, I think we have bought into this narrative largely due to a patriarchal society that if we are speaking up as women, Mm. that we're being shrill, we're being bitchy, we're being, we're rocking the boat. Like we have a bunch of idioms that say, basically shut the fuck up. Like (laughs) don't rock the boat. Don't open up a can of worms, sweep it under the rug. Like all of those are code for like, keep fucking silent. and. So, I think the first thing that we have to kind of grapple with is understanding that we've been conditioned to be quiet. Mm. And also compounded on that is if you're a part of any marginalized identity. So, if you're also queer or disabled or in a fat body or a person of color, now you're, you have elevated levels of, you better fucking fit in and, and keep quiet and not speak up. So one of the things that I do think is really, really important to underline here is your first, first concern always is your own personal safety. Mm. So when we people please, or when we take care of other people, sometimes that's legitimately so that we can stay safe. Mm. So I'll use an example. I am a queer individual. If I was to be among a group of folks who were very clearly anti LGBTQ, that's not the time for me to have a tough conversation or for me to have a boundary or to that priority right then is for me to take care of my safety and my well being. Mm. So I think we have to be careful in personal development to demonize behavioral tactics like people pleasing or like perfectionism because we think, oh, they're always wrong. They're not always wrong. Sometimes that's literally how you're gonna stay safe in a situation. Hmm. But as far as like starting to approach tough conversations, let's say you know that you are safe in, in these various interactions and you just need to know what are the semantics or how do I go about this? I think your first item of business is to figure out where do I need a boundary? where do I need to speak up around an issue? And almost always you can pinpoint that by figuring out what you complain about the most (laughs) Mm -hmm. or about who you complain about the most. For example, let's say you really struggle with a, a coworker or somebody who you're doing a creative project with. Maybe you're producing a play together or something. And instead of talking to that person, you come home and your partner gets near an full mm-hmm. and so you just go on and on and on and on and on about how shitty this person is and how good you know they just come and hear everything and most of the time if it's worth complaining about it's worth taking some action on mm-hmm. and I'm not talking about just, If we're just venting or clearing, I'm talking about habitually, consistently complaining about some specific person's behavior that you do not address to them.
0: Mm.
1: Now you're just rendering yourself a victim chronically because you're saying, I cannot be happy. I cannot be in my power unless this person just magically changes. So I like to say you need to at least give people the opportunity to be what you need if they would be surprised that you felt the way you feel, then that's probably on you. That's something you need to articulate. Mm-hmm. So as far as you know, what to actually say or how to go about it, that's going to de- depend quite a bit on that particular relationship that you have with that person. It also depends on if it's a boundary category where you're saying, I'm not going to tolerate this anymore and there's no real room for discussion. Mm. Or if you're having a tough conversation that's collaborative, where we need to both work together to come to some resolution, or if it's a combination of both. Mm. So I'm curious for you, is there something that you you see a lot in the community that you could give me as an example? And then I'll give you like a formula on how to tackle it.
0: Yeah, yeah, so First of all, I'm, I'm also grateful that you brought up the safety piece because I think that is something that it's so important to touch on. And it brings up a host of questions of like, right, if that safety isn't there with that person or in a group of people or in a certain space to preserve our self-safety, is it best if do we stay quiet and like how how do we create change if, if then we can't even can't even communicate, or we can't even like have that communication. And even I'm, I mean, as, as an example too, I work for a theater. So I work Mm. with all kinds of artists and creatives and we're going through a lot of institutional cultural change right now because of everything that's going on in the world. And we work with a lot of marginalized communities and, From my perspective and from my experience working in this theater, being in these different spaces and myself as a white straight woman, I have a very different experience than some of my colleagues. But Mm -hmm. what I see happening a lot is this lack of communication and this lack of just people not being on the same page because they're not able to speak openly and be able to share what's really going on. I notice a lot of people kind of like saying, like skirting around things, like saying things, but not really saying them. So then it's kind of unclear what we're talking about in at all, instead of Mm -hmm. kind of just like laying it all out there, getting everything out in the open. So it kind of becomes this like confusing landscape to navigate Mm -hmm. where I will sit in spaces and be like, what are we even talking about here? And I know that I'm not alone in that experience. I've heard from other people too, that it kind of feels like we'll talk around things and then nothing really gets solved and nothing really changes. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know if you have any, I, I know that's not super specific, but that's kind of like the general feeling that's coming up around that. So I wonder, do, do people that you work with come across that where, you know, mm-hmm. it's like when we're talking about how do we communicate? It's like, where do we even begin when we're all kind of so maybe feeling confused about like how to even get to the heart of the issue?
1: So I think what's unique and different about what you're explaining here is that you are, what I'm assuming being somebody who's done theater quite a bit myself as well, is you're a part of sort of like a second family almost, you know, it's, it's not the same as a workplace, but there, you have a camaraderie that's a little bit different, right?
0: right. Which can also get dicey because then boundaries can get crossed when it's like, if you're calling yourself a second family, when, which is great, but also you're still at the workplace. So there still does, you know, we're not family. So there still does have to be those boundaries in place, which is can get really hard. I think in the artist world too, where we do think of our, our peers and our the people we work with as family, which which I think also can get complicated sometimes.
1: I think one of the things that you all could explore first off is saying what's there. Mm. So exactly what you said to me, I would say, say that amongst the group. Mm. I would say, I feel like we are afraid to offend one another. Mm. That's the last intention that we have. So we dance around topics without really addressing them. Do you feel that way? Right. Mm -hmm. And maybe being able to cite specific conversations or instances. A lot of times just addressing what the dynamic in the conversation is rather than the actual content can be extremely helpful. So for example, let's say, let's say you and your partner that you live with, you, you always argue about the dishwasher, right? And you go on and on and on, or you always argue about where to send your kid to school or whatever. If you stop and look at the actual dynamic of here's what happens, I get offended, you, then I lash out, I scream and yell, then you retreat you can talk about what is happening where everybody isn't feeling safe to communicate effectively, and then you can start unpacking that part. So that's another reason why I will tell people when you're getting in a heated conversation to say things like, I'm, I'm happy to continue discussing this with you, but not if you continue to call me names. So instead of retaliating and going, no, I'm not, or that's not what I said. And instead of entertaining anything, calling out the actual dynamic of the conversation, I'm not going to continue this conversation. If you continue to speak to me like that, like calmly instead of taking the bait. Mm. So I think that's also what's happening here with your group is that My guess is, is that everybody wants to create a space of safety, but isn't quite sure what that looks like.
0: Mm. And when,
1: when I went to coaching school, like 20 years ago, they had a really great concept called designing the alliance that had to do with creating the container for coaching, but it can work in any organization. And it's where, at the beginning, collaboratively, collaboratively as a group, you sit and design your alliance. How do we want to handle conflict? How do we want to handle race issues? How do we want to handle fat phobia? How do we want to handle gender issues? How do you like what? And everybody actively designing that alliance. What do we need to feel safe, genuinely speaking up? What are our requirements of dealing with difficult? issues hmm. like what what standards and practices do we want to create as a community to hold these difficult conversations and that's not dissimilar to an another workplace an office a marriage a family dealing with children Designing that sort of an alliance of when you speak to me in this way, I don't respond well, or here's how I interpret that here's how that feels as a queer disabled person or as a black, you know, male, or whatever anybody's various identities are because they get to say what, what feels appropriate to them and ask for those things. Mm. But what's important, the most important piece is that the container is set up to respect those things Mm. because we don't always have that. So a tough conversation with, let's say what many of us white folks (laughs) deal with is having very racist relatives who say off-putting things that are unacceptable. In those situations, that might not be a collaborative designing the alliance situation, like what I would offer to the to you. Hmm. In that situation, I'm not, it's not up for debate. I'm not going to get into a deep conversation with you. I'm going to say something more simply like, I actually find that highly offensive. I would appreciate it if you didn't say anything like that in my company. Hmm. what we don't realize about speaking up is that it does not always have to be a full-blown conversation. Sometimes it's enough to just say, I don't share that opinion. So a, a great example actually that came out of a theater experience myself is I was backstage and there was a gentleman who I was doing a show with and he shows me a meme on his phone that was really disparaging to a mentally and physically disabled child which to me doesn't constitute humor and or comedy. So the easy thing to do in that moment and also cowardly would be to go ha ha, ha, ha and just kind of like walk away, but not mm-hmm. really say anything. Now, I also don't have to get into a full blown conversation about why I find that offensive. So what I chose to say was, I, I actually don't find that funny and I would appreciate it if you didn't show me anything like that in the future. All right. Mm. See you in the green room or see you on stage. Or when are you working that scene and like changing the subject, Mm. moving on. But I operate under the mantra of do not allow your silence to make you a liar. Mm. I am not going to let my silence make me complicit with thinking that that is funny. That's not funny to me. So that's another, so there's lots of layers and lots Mm -hmm. of nuance depending on the specific situation. But to answer your question earlier about, well, how do we affect change? You do that in, in the ways in which you feel safe and also like on your own time and in your own vessel. So for me personally, I'm, I kind of describe myself as an outgoing introvert. I don't love to be out and with a bunch of people doesn't recharge me that much, but I can have thoughtful, provoking conversations on my podcast or visiting other people's podcasts. That's one of my vehicles for change.
0: Mm-hmm. I,
1: I took an amazing social justice class from a gentleman named Dr. T Williams, and he talked about how he. He based off of how he operates, he cannot affect change by going to rallies or going to marches because he, the way his temperament is, is he will likely be arrested and that he won't be helpful to the movement. Mm. So he is much better at conducting his own courses and helping to affect change that way. So I think it's important for us to understand that the revolution has many different pieces Mm -hmm. (laughs) and there's way and, and many different roles. Like they're, there are so many different ways that we can affect change. But my, my personal thought, especially as a white individual, is that a majority of that is through the stuff that happens with our nuclear families and who might never listen to... A podcast on fat phobia or might never listen to a black person on their podcast or may never read a book by a queer individual. So I look at that as like, how can I best represent those groups of people in a way where I can actually be heard? Hmm. And the way in which we can be heard that is totally counterintuitive is by being kind. Because when we feel offended or when we feel wronged in some way, or we feel like we're sort of a proxy for folks who've been wronged, our instinct is to lash out, right? Like that's a very primitive fight, flight, freeze thing where we want to be like, well, that's a fucked up thing to say, you know, or, "Ew, I guess you didn't get the memo about hashtag me too, or like, we want to be really adversarial about it. But most of the time, that's not how information is received well. Mm. So a majority of it is about our choice of delivery. And Mm. to me, that's sort of a combination of grace and kindness, which is kind of a staple with assertiveness Mm. so that I'm assertive
0: and I'm also being kind. Mm. Yeah, that's, I love that. Thank you. I think that's super helpful. And it kind of makes me think about like, how do we how do we stay in relationship with people that we disagree with and maybe disagree with on very fundamental issues? And how can, like, how you know, can that relationship survive? And, and I guess, you know, I'm thinking like if there is a mutual level of love and respect there, sure, maybe, but how could we discern for ourselves if we do have friends or family members who think very differently from us, how can we, be in relationship with those types of people without, without hurting our safety, but with, but also while respecting like that, we might have really different ideas and ways of looking at the world.
1: Yeah, this is, this is definitely tricky and this comes down to a real clear understanding of your own moral compass and your own value system. And and the boundaries that you're willing to put around those things. So I'll give you sort of an anecdotal example. As I mentioned, I grew up extremely religious and my mom still very much is involved in that. And and the more work that I've done and the more I've grown and the more religious trauma I've addressed, the more I've realized that there was a lot of really abusive, unacceptable things that I experienced as dogma. So conversely, my work that is all about leaning on your own understanding and tapping into your own psyche, and it is kind of new agey and of the devil to my mom. (laughs) So we're on a very, very different value system. Now, I would say that we both have a value around spirituality, but we just define it extremely differently. Mm but if i want to be respected for my beliefs i also need to respect hers now that in this category that means i can still have a relationship with her it means that we're primarily relegated to superficial topics like food or gardening or home decor or holiday events you know things like that
0: mm.
1: it means that the depth of our conversations don't get to be what they might be with another friend of mine who is um, who is on the different political spectrum where we can sit and have really thoughtful, great conversations mm. and really respect each other and and hear one another out. So years ago, my mom would would continue to invite me to church. Right. And it was really offensive to me because of how I grew up and how I viewed it. And it felt like a deliberate, I don't give a shit what you want. I'm going to keep pushing this on you kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I said to her, I, I know that that is coming from a good place, right? Like it's, she's not coming from a deliberate place of malice. So I know her intent was pure but it doesn't mean it's acceptable for me. Mm. So I said, I really, I know that that's coming from a really good place. And I can also imagine that it's probably really, really difficult to have your children not subscribe to the way you raise them. But it is really offensive to me to continue to invite me to something that I have expressed that I'm not interested in and For that same reason, I don't invite you to like summer solstice celebrations. Mm -hmm. And I don't try to read your horoscope or do Enneagram shit with you. (laughs) And I would, I would appreciate the same reciprocity. Here's what I can do. I can promise you that if I ever change my mind, that you will be the first person to know.
0: Mm.
1: Until then, I'm humbly asking for the same respect that I'm giving you. That's a very different conversation than, you know, God, you're always asking me to do that or placating and saying like, I don't know, let me check my schedule. I don't know, which you're not standing in your truth. So there's ways to kind of honor both. Now in that relationship, like I said, we basically stay away from it. Mm -hmm. We stay away from all of those really polarized thoughts or topics. Other friendships of mine that I've mentioned, we can have those conversations. We can have those deeper opinions.
0: Mm.
1: Now it also depends on what what it exactly you are debating. I cannot ethically, consciously, or in good conscience, I should say, s- stay connected with somebody who believes that that it's not acceptable to love who you love. you know, who thinks that that person is a demon you know for being queer <laughs> or that is debates the rights of black people in this country like uh, those sorts of things for me are deal breakers i'm not interested in maintaining a an intimate in-depth con- relationship with somebody like that long term that's my level now i also have folks in my life being in the south that we've met who I know I might be their only experience with a liberal, (laughs) right? And so I want to make sure that I'm not living into some dumb media hyped up stereotype. Mm. And I want to provide insight, but those folks are not my best friends. Those are not the ones that I'm spending a shit ton of time with. So it's about just being really deliberate about What does feel like a deal breaker to you? What is, you know, I forget where I heard this or how it was exactly framed up, but it's something like, you know, there's 15 minute friends, there's 15 month friends, and then there's 15 year friends or something like that. And so I think it's okay if we go, oh, somebody who I thought was a 15 year friend is really more like a 15 minute now that I've changed perspectives or now that I've grown, all of those things are okay. Yeah, You know, it's okay to outgrow relationships because you've learned new things. Some folks are going to be open to coming along for the ride and hearing you out. And then some people, it might be
0: collateral damage to the growth. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. 15 minute friends versus 15 year friends and being able to discern the difference and that it's, it's okay to change your mind and to, to have relationships change and take shape. and, And while, I mean, even in the example you gave about your mother, like in in a way it's, it might be like, do you carry any sort of sadness or grief around the fact that you can't really go deeper with her? And also, so it's like, there's that level of it. And just the way that you're able to show up in that relationship still without cutting that off, I think is such a testament to the personal work that you've done. And another question that's coming through is how do we begin to regulate our nervous systems? Because I think when you're in these really emotional moments and, and these, you know, in a topic of a heated discussion or something you feel really passionate about, I think we our trauma responses can get really triggered. And I think that's why you see people, you know, have an outburst or not be able to talk about things. I know for myself, like, I in the past, like couldn't even have difficult conversations because I would just shut down and I wouldn't even be able to hear anything. The other person was saying because of my own stuff. And now that I've done a lot of personal work, I'm able to listen more with an open mind and open heart and not be so affected by what someone else is saying, but that comes with a lot of self-awareness and a lot of self-work and understanding. So Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you say to that piece of it of like regulating our nervous systems? Where do you start with that work? If you are getting really triggered when, when something is coming up and yeah, what would you say to all that?
1: Yeah. So to a couple of things, one to your very first question about like, is there still grief involved or is there still other emotion involved? Absolutely. And I think there's different levels of that grief where it manifests itself. So for example, during the 2016 election, I really wanted to have like a thoughtful conversation with my mom about why on earth are you supporting Trump? Which of course is not how I phrased it, but I wanted to genuinely have this really awesome interaction with her, hoping that we could have an understanding outside of like how people are kind of pitted against one another in the media. I, I personally feel like we are a lot more aligned as a culture than we think we are, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, anyway, we could get, go on and on about that, but I left that interaction so disappointed because she basically was not aware of anything going on and didn't really care to be aware around anything that was going on, just kind of blindly following, I always vote Republican, and this is just kind of how I'm going. And so although I had had all these other elements of grief that I had worked through, there was this new one because a new situation had presented itself. And I kind of went, I'm never going to have that. I'm never going to have either the parent who is extremely thoughtful and educated on their political stances. And I'm also never going to have the parent who I align with on my belief systems. And, and on one token, I am really sad about that. But on the other end, I'm like, that's been the my greatest teacher to yeah. find my own voice and then subsequently being able to teach that to others. So,
0: and now I'm spacing on your this, the primary question you had. Yeah. Well, thank you for answering that. Cause I know I started off with that and then kind of went somewhere else, but I was talking about like, how do we begin to do the work to regulate our nervous systems so that we're not so triggered in times of conflict or disagreement? Well, I think this is a great item
1: that you're bringing up here. If you tend to not really have trouble talking to most people, you know, you, you engage with folks normally, you, you know, your best friend or, you know, some folks that you work with or whatever, you're able to have some pretty thoughtful conversations, but there is one specific person where you have physiological response to them, Mm. like heart palpitations, like sweaty palms, like feeling like you need to laugh at everything, you know, then you're kind of in a trauma response. So that situation I think, I really think a majority of this can be addressed in therapy, like a really specific talk therapy situation where you're addressing this particular person. I tend to go into this massive fear response every time I'm around them. There's something there that needs some processing and some working out.
0: Mm.
1: Now, if you tend to just clam up and get freaked out about conversations with damn near everybody, That probably also has a a trauma origin and again, needs to be worked through with somebody who is a specialist or who can say, you know, of course you just want to placate and people please. That's how you stayed safe as a child. You know, that's how you made sure you could fly under the radar and that your alcoholic parents didn't, didn't, you know, cause trauma to you because you were able to slip slip through the sidelines and just always kind of stay safe. And then you use that going forward in your life as a defense mechanism. So those sorts of things you have to unlearn. And that those are behavioral tactics that are fueled by belief systems, which is something that I work with my clients and students on all the time is shifting what's happening in the subconscious part of the mind, which then starts to shift what we choose as behavioral coping strategies. So both of those situations, if you're in an extreme nervous situation where you're almost in that fight, flight all the time, because you feel this sense of threat, there's, it's probably worth unpacking with somebody.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And even, so thank you for that. And like, even, you know, I'm thinking about, let's say that I'm in an argument with my partner and it's like, I get very triggered and I'm quick to yell or shut down or like I'm reaching that like pinnacle of like, I can't even take this. I, you know, I can't do this. How would you start to be able to train yourself to like stay when things get hard or to not lash out when things get hard to not, I mean, I even had this situation a couple like weeks ago, I was on a call with a coworker and he was saying something that I felt like, I felt like he was attacking me and I I was about to get my period too. So there might've been some like hormonal stuff going on, but I got so triggered that I just quit the meeting. Like I was like, I can't even be in this space right now. And I quit the meeting and I was so embarrassed that I left without saying anything. And I like took a moment to breathe. I like had this like huge emotional outburst. I took a moment to breathe. I came back into the meeting I kind of acted like nothing happened and just, you know, maybe my Wi-Fi dropped out or something. So I didn't even address what I was actually thinking Mm -hmm. and feeling or how he, how he was talking to me, made me feel. So that's definitely a moment where, you know, I could have stood up for myself and I could have spoken my truth and, and could have taken that moment per pause, but it's like, how do you get to that place where you're not having those Mm -hmm. like irrational, emotional, not, not irrational, but those Those emotional responses that are clearly coming from a different place than what the situation at hand is calling for. Does that make sense? There's a lot
1: of answers to this. One is to learn, really understand and learn about emotional regulation and to figure out what triggers are for you you know, what, what those things are, when it's, you know, it's always men, right? Like it's men who are an authority figures. That's a huge trigger for me. It's anything related to my intelligence or incompetence. Like if somebody is alluding to the fact that I, intelligence is a trigger for me, right? Like it's learning what your triggers are, learning what your, what your natural emotional response is. And then starting to look at, calibrating that a little bit differently but here's what i'll say as far as practical implementable things you could do with this exact situation if this happens if this happened again you you have two kind of options to go with the first one is you could come back on and you could say you know i just need to to kind of clear the air about something and, and then you address it then and you and one of the things that can be helpful is assuming positive intent, assuming that whatever he's doing, whether he's getting aggressive or getting worked up, it's because he really wants to rectify a problem or wants to see something different happen for the theater company or whatever it is. So assuming that it's probably not about my wounded mm. childhood. <laughs> right? <Yes>. My <laughs> wounded self or. however, I developed that trigger. So to come back and say, I'm sure this wasn't your intention, but when we got on the subject of fill in the blank, the way that landed for me Mm. or the, what I heard on my end or the way I interpreted that. So Mm. you're not saying you are being a dick. You're saying those words, when I received them came across to me as dismissive Or, like, I wasn't, I'm not a valuable part of this team. And that triggered me considerably. And I, and rather than lashing out at you in response,
0: Mm. I
1: needed to just take a break. Mm. Right. So, that's one option. My guess is because of how you responded, that that would probably lead you to tears right in the middle of the Mm. like, it would probably be too much. Definitely. So what I would probably, if I was coaching you, what I would probably say is let's declare the do-over. So what that means is you handle it later when you've come down out of this intense emotional state. Mm. So, and you can do a bunch of like anxiety reducing techniques, you know, with the vagus nerve or holding like ice near the vagus nerve on on your chest can help soothe the nervous system. There's a bunch of different things like that. But even a few days later and asking him and saying, Hey, I would, I would love to just circle back with you about something. Mm. Right. Because again, this is at least giving them the opportunity to be what you need. Mm. If you haven't it's one thing to express what you need and him going, fuck you. Sorry, you interpreted that way, but get over it. Then we're dealing with a whole new boundary situation. Yeah. But as it stands with you saying nothing, he may think you love that. He may think you're motivated by tough love, or he might think a lot of times people think, I'm sure if it was a bigger deal, she would have said something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm.
1: So I would circle back with him and say, Hey, I would, I would love to have a few moments of your time. And then I would say, you know, there were some things that came up for me in our meeting the other day. And I realized that you would have no idea that that was going on in my mind. And if the situation was reversed, I would really want you to come to me. So there were some certain things that were said that really landed in a way that was kind of unsettling for me. And I would love to just toss that around with you because I'm sure that's not your intent. Mm. So you're framing it up in a very, very different way. You're, you're automatically giving him the opportunity to not be on the defensive Mm. because you're not saying we need to talk. Right. Yeah. You're saying like, I want to run some stuff by you or, Hey, I wanted to get your thoughts on something. Those are much more disarming. And then if you're saying it's not fair to you that I haven't said anything, you're again, putting them not on the defensive. So just small little subtle tactics, but I would think with where you're at, with how extreme your response was, that the circle back is probably going to be the most helpful for you right now.
0: Oh, thank you. That's so helpful. And I love I love the assumed positive intent because I imagine if I did kind of circle back with him, that would create such a deeper understanding between the two of us that would only strengthen the way that we communicate and connect and collaborate. And so it would be a missed opportunity for me to not share how I was feeling in that moment because, you know, then those kinds of things could fester, or it's like, maybe I, you know, cause I've noticed that I've held on to a little bit of reservations now with him and other meetings. And I'm like kind of being careful instead of really just kind of taking that self-responsibility and self-ownership of, Hey, I know this was not your intention, but this is how it made me feel. And I just want to make sure that you're aware of that so we can move forward. And then what I would add to that
1: is a specific request or a specific mm-hmm. ask. So this can look a ton of different ways. You could have like a funny little saying that the two of you had together where he followed up everything that, that may come off a bit aggressive with sorry, not sorry. And that way, you know, like you have this little inside joke of like, oh, he's not really trying to go after me. You know, it's just, he's worked up and, you know, emphatic about whatever he's discussing. So you could have a specific request of like, hey, can we come up with like a little funny, it could be even a a motion you do with your hands. It could be a code word. It could be anything like that. Or you can say, if you are going to, let's say, offer up a scene suggestion or offer up a fundraising idea for the theater, or... It would mean the world to me if you would phrase it like this. Mm. Um, yeah, Like I have, my, my best friend, this is a perfect example. My best friend, when she, it, we go back and forth and leave messages for each other on this like walkie talkie app. And if I don't respond to something that she asked me a question about, she says, you never answered me about this. For some reason, when she says that, I feel like I'm in trouble. It brings up all of my like little girl at Sunday school. You got in trouble. You didn't do it right. It is so triggering for me. She doesn't mean anything negative by it. So by me saying, hey, for some reason, that makes me want to pull my teeth out. I don't even really know why. (laughs) But could you say this instead? Could you say, I don't think you replied i can't remember you know just say that i don't think you answered this maybe i, I don't remember you know just say that instead of you never an- you never answered me or you never said anything about fill in the blank so just giving them like here's my request next yeah. time say these exact words most people have no idea what would sound better or be better for you because they communicate likely th- the same way with most people, you know, and if you're really demonstrative and loud and like, I am like, I talk with my hands and I'm big, it's hard for me to believe somebody when they're like, I'm really, really excited. And they're not excited. Doesn't look how it looks on me. Mm. Right. And so I go, are you really? So we have to really learn that we're all feeling a lot of emotion, but some of us express it in different ways. And it doesn't mean it's not there. It's just a matter of like saying, here's, here's what would mean the world to me. Try saying it like this. Mm, I love
0: that. Yeah. I think that's so helpful for people to just let you know what would work for you because we're, we're not mind readers. We don't know like what would, what would be better. So just giving that specific action is super helpful. I'm curious about your work with hypnotherapy because I think that's so cool. And I'm wondering how does that connect to the work that you do and, and yeah, how does hypnotherapy play into all of this? Yeah. So hypnotherapy is really
1: in a nutshell, what it does is it when you put somebody into a hypnotic trance, which all that means is that we're slowing down the brain waves, how fast the brain waves are going. Mm-hmm. So when we're awake, our brain waves are going a little bit at a faster speed. When we go to sleep, they're in a delta wave, which means they're really the slowest that they that they are, because they don't need to operate the entire body, right? We don't, nothing needs to go off and move around. There's an in-between state between awake and asleep that is called theta brainwave state. And that is essentially a hypnotic trance. So if you've ever had that experience where you're driving along to some location and you get to your destination but you were thinking about something that was going on with work all day. And the whole time you were driving there, that's all you were just like, I should have said this. I should have done that. And you get to your destination. You don't really remember the drive at all. That is a hypnotic trance. Your conscious mind is thinking about the argument. The subconscious mind knows exactly how to drive. It knows how to shift. It knows how to turn right. It knows where your signals are. You don't have to tell yourself like, okay, now look to the right. Okay. Right. So your subconscious is, is doing a lot of work. In fact, depending on who you're talking to, our subconscious mind has uh, roughly between 90 to 95% of our mind's capacity. So that means that no matter what, you know, consciously that five to 10% of like, I know, I, I mean, I should believe that I'm enough. I should believe that I'm capable of establishing boundaries. I know that makes sense. All I have to do is logically say these things, but the subconscious, if there is a deep seated belief in the subconscious that let's say growing up, you learned that whole idea that people pleasing is a safety thing. It's a positive thing. Now, it's not going to matter how, how often you try to say, oh, no, you're capable of speaking up because your subconscious is going, no, people, please, people, please, people, please. We know how to do that. It's safe. Even if it's wildly uncomfortable, it's familiar and it's known. So there's sort of this little guard dog that's right in between those two between the subconscious and the, or the subconscious and the conscious mind. And that's the critical factor of the mind, which is the inner critic basically. Mm. So the inner critic is always looking for continuity between those two parts of the mind. Mm. So that's why if you start these positive affirmations and you're like, why don't these work? It's because that inner critic is going, fuck no, we don't believe that. Get that shit out of here. Get that shit out of here. But one of the ways to, to get those affirmations or those new beliefs to be housed in the subconscious is to do that with repetition. Mm. But we don't do positive affirmations with repetition because the kickback from the inner critic is so damn strong that we're like this doesn't work, you know? Yes. So we throw in the towel way too early. The other thing that does help us bridge that gap is to put that little guard dog to sleep. Which happens in hypnosis. Hmm. So, when you slow down the brain waves, that little critical factor goes to sleep. So, if I'm feeding in messages like I am capable of speaking up for myself, or I powerfully navigate boundaries, or I am enough, or I'm worthy, or whatever, you don't have this little chirp going off, going, This is dumb. This is stupid. This is no, you're not. You're an idiot. You're an asshat. You know, you don't have that during hypnosis. So it's much easier for it to fall into the subconscious and become a new belief. Mm. So I use that in in a lot of ways in my work, but largely it's around shifting, disempowering beliefs. Mm. So whether that is around, we do like forgiveness work, we do inner child stuff, we do emotional intelligence work, values, whatever, all of that can be amplified by doing hypnotic work that helps speed up that anchoring into the subconscious mind.
0: Mm, I love that. That feels like the perfect tool to go along with this work. Because even as we were talking about with just regulating your nervous system and your trauma responses, that feels like that missing piece to rewire some of those beliefs so that Mm -hmm. when a situation comes up again, you're not operating from that old belief or that old past trauma. You're actually meeting the moment where, you know, in the present and, and showing yep. up with all of you. So that does feel like a really, really important tool to go along with this work. I love that. I
1: do too. And in fact, that was one of the reasons why I got pulled to hypnosis as a modality, because I went to hypnosis school in 2019, but I've been working as a coach since the mid two thousands. Wow! And I started going, okay, what actually shifts the subconscious? Because mm-hmm. that's, other than that, we just have repetition. So, and that's, we, all of us who've ever tried positive affirmations, we know that kickback is so strong Mm -hmm. that it's, it's hard to continue on with that because the inner critic is so loud. So I was like, there's gotta be a better way. (laughs) And that's kind of what landed me in the lap of, of the hypnotic modality.
0: Wow. Oh, I love that. Thank you, Amy. This has been so wonderful. I, one of my last questions is I love sharing resources on this podcast. So that's either like a book or a podcast that you love and maybe has helped Mm. you with some of this work, or is there something that we can direct people to, to learn more about how to approach, you know, this work in, in this way or yeah. Are there there anything that is coming up? Well,
1: one of the things that we talked about a little bit was emotional regulation and really emotional intelligence. I think possibly one of the most important books out right now is Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown. I don't know if you've checked it out. It's it, it's basically like a dictionary of our most common, I think it's about 84 emotions and experiences. So she includes in there things like perfectionism, which is not an emotion, but it's an experience that we go through. And she really delineates what's different about them, what's similar. She chunks them by similar experiences. And it's, I think it's probably one of the most useful and helpful places to start Because if we don't have vocabulary around what's happening for us, like for you, the anecdote that you shared about being really triggered by this gentleman on the call for you to be able to go into that book and go, I was feeling shame. I was feeling disappointment. I was feeling overwhelmed to recognize and go, Oh, that's what that feels like. Okay. My behavior is usually to run away. Is that <laughs> helpful? How can I calibrate that? So that's a great, great first place to start. And also, I have a ton of resources. I've been doing a podcast for over nine years myself. Wow. And you know, it, on my site, you can find like free workbooks and free hypnosis tracks. So you can find all of that over
0: at amygreensmith.com. Amazing. Thank you. I'm so grateful that we got to connect and just so grateful that you are doing this work in the world. Cause like I said, at the beginning, I think, I think we all need that right now for us to heal. And and I, what you said earlier too, like really stuck with me of, I think the media and the way that the world is painted right now makes us think that we are just all on opposite sides of the spectrum. And, and, you know, there's a lot more disagreement, but I think that at the heart of it, like we all want the same things. And the more that we can continue to show up for ourselves and for each other and identify our values, identify who we are hopefully then we can all accept and embrace each other as exactly who we are. And, and when we see others doing that, we, that just gives us permission to do the same. So I'm just really appreciative of the work that you're doing in this world. And thank you for taking the time to share that with us today.
1: Sure. It's my honor and to, to piggyback a bit on what you just said, there's a great quote from Brene, who mm. I like to call Our Lady Brene of House Brown, <laughs> and she she says, it's really hard to hate people close up. Mm. And it's such a great reminder that like when we're behind our keyboards or on social media, the communication that we're getting is roughly 7% right wow. because we don't have tone of voice and we don't have body language and that's a majority yeah. of how we communicate so when we are close up with folks it's so much easier to view their humanity to be empathetic and to let our let our acceptance be a little bit more forthcoming you know
0: yeah oh i love that thank you thank you so much amy i'm sure we'll connect soon and we'll link your podcast and your website and all of your work and yeah just thank you for this beautiful conversation Uh you're most welcome it's my honor Mm. I hope you enjoyed that episode and thank you so much for listening if you like this episode please feel free to share it with a friend and tell them what inspired you shining your creative soul.